you. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome to the 2023 year-end recap. Um, that'd be fun to do a little uh, recap of this year. Not just because I haven't done a podcast in a while, but also because, you know, I was uh, thinking about the year. It's been a rough year. It's been a year full of very high highs and very low lows. So I was like, oh, what if I look through all the episodes and kind of see what I've done and, um, and sort of get some perspective on on this year that's kicked my ass. And uh, whoa boy, what a year. Uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, Person on a personal uh, note, it's been uh, it's been a crazy, wild year. I you know the beginning of the year started out with a lot of low lows and you know uncertainty and and uh, deep depression and uh, and then uh, you know a lot of life changes, a lot of I changed jobs. Uh, you know, th- I thought the year was going to go in one direction, and then I went in a completely insane unexpected uh direction and uh you know even up until a couple days ago cut the shit out of my finger you know my slice my finger open to the bone so this year's gone from you know the lowest lows to you know going to japan and korea and vietnam which are lifelong goals of mine and uh and meeting some incredible people that and having some experiences that i never even dreamed you know, that I've only dreamed about for like the last, uh, two decades. So man, what a fucking year. Yeah. I, uh, every year I sort of make these, these bold claims for myself. You know, I overshoot and, uh, hoping that I'll reach some sort of a goal. But I, I remember casually from, uh, last year that I had these bold, uh, goals that I was going to try to get to one podcast a week. And, um, and you know, yeah, life kicked my ass, man. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of life changes and I couldn't really keep up with it. And then, you know, uh, being able to find people to do this podcast, you know, uh, it's also a hard commitment. And then, uh, with everything going on, it's hard to, you know, uh, find the time to do everything. So I think overall I've really learned what this podcast is and what I enjoy about it and sort of uh, what my limits are. And, uh, I think two podcasts uh, a month is pretty good. You know, I'm not going to get to uh, any new heights of my career with this thing. Um, if it does, then that'd be great, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen because I have other things going on in my life. Another thing that 2023 taught me is that you got to calm the fuck down, you know, live, live a life outside of this podcast and the kitchen. So, uh, definitely try to do that a lot more this year to actually, uh, invest time in people that I care about because, you know, we're not going to all be around. I don't want to take it dark, but you know, life is, life has a limit. That's the other thing that happens here. A lot of death, a lot of death, man, it really changes your perspective on stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the other, <laughs> this year kind of grim, a lot of death, uh, throughout the whole year. Um, yeah, well, this is kind of a longer episode, so let's get into it, man. I don't have any any bold claims for this year. I have a few things that I want to do, but I'm going to keep that to myself this year. Last year, I sort of said it out loud so that I would be held accountable, but, uh, you know, nobody's holding me accountable except for myself. 
So this year I'm going to keep my wild outlandish goals to myself so that uh, I have realistic expectations. Uh, suffice it to say, I'm going to keep doing this thing. I have a, a lot of fun with this. Uh, I love talking to people. I love talking to people about kitchens, listening to all these podcasts again. I love hearing people sort of open up. There's a moment that happens. It's usually like about like 10 to 20 minute mark where people start to open up and you can tell they're like having fun just talking and telling their story. Uh, that's my favorite part about doing this thing. So I just look forward to doing more of that. That's really fun. Uh, if there's anybody that you'd like to hear on the podcast, always, you know, send it, send it my way. DM me on Instagram or email me, whatever, you know, there's contacts all over the place. You can go to the website, all that kind of shit. Uh, there's also gonna be some new merch up. I'm going to, uh, post about that this week. I also redid the store a little bit. So that's uh, pmmagazine.com slash store. Yeah. So let's get into it. These are the moments that I chose because I feel like these are the moments that kind of stuck out to me. Uh, looking back, you know, thinking about each of these episodes, they were just moments that, that I recalled instantly. So they're not necessarily the best, uh, you know, I would encourage you to listen to all of these podcasts. They're all incredible. Everybody's stories are really fun and great to listen to. But these are the moments that really stuck out to me. And uh, I'll go through each one as it, as it happens. You might recognize some theme throughout this episode, but I'm going to let you uh, decipher that for yourself. I don't want to push any themes on anything here. I'm sure you'll recognize some some themes, especially if you work in kitchens or restaurants. First episode of the year was episode 11 that was joel rivas from san joel's a great guy doing uh god's work in this in this godforsaken industry his organization uh her.org has been working for a long time making access to mental health and addiction recovery a reality for service industry people because a lot of us aren't uh don't have health insurance and a lot of us don't make enough money to be able to do that. I have noticed this year a lot more people have been, uh, you know, making mental health and uh, their own health a priority. I don't know if that's just in my circle, uh, myself included. So that's what I'm seeing. So that's that's great. It's great news. But uh, what you'll notice with a lot of these clips is that it this person's story or a story that happened to them. So I tried to keep it mainly uh, focused on on the person. Yeah. So first clip, episode eleven. Joel Rivas. Wait, yeah. so uh, so did, was your addiction leading up to that point, or was it? Uh, yeah, so, was, I guess so, was it was it because of working in kitchens? I guess is what. Well, I, I mean, working in kitchens and restaurants. Period. Again, you your social circle. My social circle was everyone I worked with, and of course, like after work, everyone goes out or everyone you know hangs out together. Um, in that that structure that 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 mentality and the dynamic of, of that um, there's nothing like it. And there's so much beauty and there's so, such a great, it's such a great industry because of that. The downside sometimes is that you have people that enable, uh, enable things that you do. And for me, it was, uh, it was, it was drug use and, um, and I'd lost several jobs uh, you know, over the oh, course geez. of a couple of years, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I would call off on so many shifts, I'd show up late, 
you know, or it, you know, it'd be basically I'd be up all night. Um, I was hooked on coke and meth for a couple of years, and it was uh, I'd be up all night or up for a couple of days. I missed shifts and got fired from several places. And uh, finally, in uh, 1996, um, I I was at my worst point in in my life just addiction wise and uh, my mother had died that year and i think it was just not knowing how to cope with that and not having any you know i have no idea what therapy was or mental health and then yeah i know yeah right back then it was yeah it was was non-existent and so um and so for me coping was was drinking heavily or doing blow and that, you know, and I was just, and so I just spun out of control for several months and then, um, uh, decided to go to rehab and live with my family in Mexico city. Was, uh, was the drug, uh, culture pretty prevalent in kitchens back then? Oh yeah. Was it pretty much like, was that mainly, was that just because they were working so much and they, they needed something to keep going or was it just like a, I mean, everyone smoked pot, but it was, it was like really bad swag and it was mostly like stems and seeds all compressed. And remember like just sitting in the living room, you had your shoebox lid and like breaking apart all the stems and seeds out of it. And, you know, so everyone's hot <laughs> and everyone and, and, and Coke was cheap and, and easily available. And it was, I mean, it was just, it's, it's kind of the same. Uh, fortunately back then we really didn't have to worry about like fentanyl which is an, oh, okay. Example. Yeah. Yeah. You no. Know, um, now it's, it's such a, I, I, I talked to, I talked to folks and it's such a, it's, it's, it's terrible now because you have to worry about, you know, something being cut with fentanyl and, and dying. And yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we didn't, which might be a, a, might be a good deterrent, I guess, for people to not so. <laughs> use so much, so many drugs, but yeah, I, I hope, I hope, I hope so. I think, I think that, um, you know, people's relationship with, 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 with different drugs or marijuana or, or Coke or, or alcohol is, is, is different. I think there are some drugs that are, um, that everyone should stay away from because they're just awful. I think any, I think things like heroin and opioid addiction are, are awful. I think, yeah. Uh, but, but like, you know, for some people, I think smoking marijuana is, uh, fantastic and great. And their relationship that with my relationship with something like marijuana is very different than my relationship with alcohol. And, um, but like with Coke, I didn't have an off switch and, uh, and I would just, yeah. I, I was that really annoying person at like, you know, <laughs> five in the morning when it runs out and everyone's like ready to leave. And I'm like, no, I'm still going. And, uh, <laughs> I was that guy. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was, was that, was that reinforced by the, the kitchens uh, you were in or were you kind of that, that one guy out? Um, at guess- first it was reinforced by just the people I hung around and it was just, it was the thing to do. And, uh, and you know, it's never something like someone forcing you to do drugs. It just happened to be available and happened to be something I really enjoyed. And, and and so I, I dove in and did it. And, you know, during the course of over, over, you know, a few years, there were people in my life that, that especially in that last year or so that, that I worked with, in bars and restaurants to try to intervene and be like, Hey man, you mean this is oh, damn. too much. And so, um, there were those people that were, that I worked with that were friends and, and that, that try to deter me. 
And even in, in, in during that time period, if there were little stints, I was like, okay, I need to lay off. Even people that were, that I hung out with were like, were great about being like, nah, don't, don't do that around Joel. He's trying to, you know. Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was because the people that I, that I worked with in, in those kitchens and those restaurants, we all loved each other and we all cared yeah. a lot like restaurants and stuff. I mean, even today it's that family. Um, and I don't mean family is like an owner operator saying this is a family, but you know, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. you spend, you spend more time at that. your at your, your kitchen or your, your bar or whatever than you do at home sometimes. Oh, so. absolutely. It's your, it becomes your family in so many ways for, for people that a lot of times don't have any food in their cupboard. Like, your shift, their shift meal is the only meal they eat that yeah. day. Uh, if they get kicked yeah. out of their house for one reason or another, uh, it's usually the people you work with that you crash on their couch or you end up getting yeah. a, getting an apartment or a house with. Um, and so they really do become your family. And I've, I've, you know, worked in different industries over my lifetime. And this is the only industry that I've ever seen that sort of dynamic in. Yeah, and, for sure. And it's, uh, I guess there's a lot of beauty in that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of love there. And um, yeah. a lot of times it's just people coping with shit the best way they know how to. And a lot of times exactly, it, yeah. it's not the healthiest. And so um, yeah. a lot of things haven't changed since the mid nineties. And except for now, over, especially over the past three, five years, three to five years, you've seen people talk about mental health more and yes. you know, sobriety and wellness and taking care of themselves uh, mm-hmm. And there's some people at the forefront of that that have been really, really fantastic. So, yeah, Joel is one of those people. Um, I know he's a pretty humble guy, but uh, I, I would definitely put him up there with people who um, are uh, at the forefront of, of helping people in the industry. Uh, next episode was um, uh, Leah Gore, who um, who is now one of uh, the chefs at Blue Hill at Stone Barn. She had a pretty big year as well <laughs> i encourage you to uh check her out on social media she's always doing some great stuff uh showcasing art and uh food as art uh this happened during the like kind of around the same time that noma was like in the news because of free labor and stuff like that so you should listen to the episode to hear the full perspective. But I chose this clip because uh it showcases leah's uh mindset and how she got to Noma and how tenacious she is and, and her work ethic and, um, and also having perspective about that, the circumstances you're in, you know, it might be free labor, but it's like you're doing it to, to achieve a goal or to get to the next thing. So did, were you working at kitchens at the same time you were in, in college? Or did you, did you uh, no. back out of kitchens at that time? I mean, I worked at Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. got, I That's worked at Chipotle. Um, it was just like a part-time whatever um, thing. It was a place where I could make money to pay my rent at the time and all my bills. So, yeah. but I was um, going to school full-time. So I didn't have like a whole lot of time to focus on culinary at the same time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up doing Chipotle and then I was like, I ended up graduating. Boyfriend broke up with me. Um, just life yeah. fucking sucked. Sorry oh, if I shit. can't cuss. No, you can curse. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's a kitchen industry podcast. I think oh, yeah. people would be more surprised if we didn't 
curse. Hey, well, I cuss yeah. like a sailor, so I should have oh, asked good. this okay. first and foremost. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. so yeah, my boyfriend breaks up with me. I graduate college and life sucked at the time. And I just started filling out all kinds of job applications, mm -hmm. stages. I was trying to seek out stages and just further my culinary because, well, I also sent applications to like galleries and museums too, basically mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, the new Noma 2.0 was sending out applications, I guess, for not stages, but internships and like six month long internships. Okay. Was this right before the pandemic or how, when, when was this? Yeah, yeah. So this was 2017 and I ended up leaving for Copenhagen 2019 or 2018. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A good friend of mine was supposed to go that same time and then oh, really? some shit happened and he didn't, he didn't get to go. But yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, so you got accepted then? Yeah. So I had to like fill out this application with bunch of questions um they did like a little interview or whatever and uh yeah wait did you I, need chipotle off the resume i got i gotta know no of course not <laughs> so, i think it's hilarious awesome. it's yeah, fucking yeah. hilarious to go from that yeah. to the new noma 2.0 yeah. so um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait what <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome yeah <laughs> But um, I was like, you know, if I'm going over there to work there for that long, I'm going to take some time to actually like stay there for a year and actually get to know the culture, eat yeah. the food, chill out, hang out. So I saved up so much money. I actually ended up getting a part time job at an art gallery and I got a job at a local Italian restaurant. So I was like working triple and <laughs> yeah yeah yes, before i went there just to save up money to survive yeah and then once i got there it was it was a bit chaotic because we were actively like we were like actively helping build this freaking oh thing. shit yeah it was oh no way kind of nuts very chaotic yeah right sheesh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how many unpaid, uh, how many uh, interns were there? Yeah, you're right. It was unpaid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say probably like 30. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Damn. And then as the seasons changed, there was like a new group of interns. So it okay. was kind of like, but they had a main staff as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like the actual paid paid staff who like exactly. kind of everything. So yeah. wait, so what do you what do they have you guys doing? Like really menial tasks or they or do they try little to little bit stuff? of everything. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of everything. My favorite part was actually foraging <laughs> with their forager, oh, yeah. Christina. Just because I'm I kind of feel like the environment around me is a little similar in 
not the mountainous areas of West Virginia, but like I feel like a lot of the fauna and flora is similar to that area. Okay. So yeah. I did feel somewhat familiar with that kind of stuff. And plus, like, again, I love being outside. So, of course, that was my yeah. favorite thing to do. What but kind yeah. of stuff were you guys forging? Because that was, um, what was, what was the menu when you were there? What was, the, I guess, the menu theme? It was a seafood season? Yeah. Seafood going into summer and then okay. um, summer veg and then uh, fall was like wild game. Okay. You know, ferments yeah. and stuff. Do you remember some of the, the things that you had you guys doing? Um, Like breaking down fish, cleaning row. They had you guys breaking down fish? Like, yeah. Like, oh, wow. That's awesome. I wouldn't think that they would let uh, most like interns touch proteins. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we broke that down, but of course we didn't get the last touch, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. the actual yeah. chefs there would have like the final, like touches to that dish. Um, mm -hmm. what was the day to day? Like, I guess, like, were you guys working like from sunup to sundown or, yes. or did you, yeah, yes. pretty much. Yes. Wow. It was, okay. it was quite military. Um, Jeez. we started at like six and, uh, I many times would not get home until like nine, 10, 11, 12. God damn. Yeah. That's yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It was nuts. And I can imagine what was the, what was the, uh, pressure there? Did you feel, I feel, I find with a lot of high end kitchens, it's very, it depends on the chef and the, the sous chefs to kind of make things a little more casual, but was it, was it militant? Was it very tight and controlled or were you guys able to joke around and, and stuff? Um, I would say both. It was, okay. it was very militant. Um, just silence in the kitchen. That kind no, of thing, no, oh, we okay. had music blasting and we, okay. we I'll did have that. fun, but it was okay. also like, you know, get shit done. We have yeah. a lot of shit to get done and like, yeah, do it perfect or mm -hmm. like, we'll skin you alive. Yeah. Like I said, Leah's experience at Noma does not define uh, her and, and I'm not trying to like bring up some point about free labor or whatever. I always remember that episode because Leah went from Chipotle to Noma, which I think says everything about about Leah and her and her mindset and uh, where she's coming from. Uh, next up, my, uh, was episode thirteen with um, with Michael Swing, who was at one point the uh, chef at Kuma's Corner. If you don't know Kuma's Corner, it's a famous burger joint in Chicago with heavy metal themed burgers. First thing I thought when I was thinking about this episode was the hole. And by the time I got there, it was 2011. So uh -huh. it was a couple years into the burger craze. But dude, it was oh, like, yeah. it was like a four hour wait on a Tuesday night type of thing. Like Jeez. every single day, damn. every morning going to work, there was a line down the block. Jesus. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, yeah. But that's, yeah, that's when I started. Did you start at like a at dishwasher or server again? Or did you start in the kitchen? I started in the kitchen. Yeah, I, 
uh, I started in the kitchen, had a had a crazy interview, and they were like, "All right, come tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they were were they pretty desperate? They were like in in need of people. Yeah, so I, I don't know how true this is, but apparently, like the summer that I started, um, they ha- had told me that they had gone through something like over a hundred cooks within like four or five months span of like just like stage didn't come back work the night didn't come back like it was crazy there (laughs) that's that's crazy is that just how chicago was or is it just such a crazy kitchen that people didn't really want to stick around kuma's corner at that time was like it was the hottest restaurant um there was a burger craze um and it was the yeah. big burgers, not because now you go and it's all the the griddle patties. That's the craze now. But at this time, it was the monster burgers, ten ounce yeah, patties with it, a bunch of shit yeah, piled yeah. on top, <laughs> yeah. uh, cooked to medium rare. You know, um, yeah. that became the craze, and so people wanted to eat there. Um, and the kitchen was only three people. It was, uh, and it was really small, really, really, really tiny. Um, you've got like your salad app guy, saute and grill, and you're just uh-huh. cranking, cranking, cranking burgers. Uh-huh. And the sad part about that situation was this place is just sh- bringing in money. And the owner was a real, real tight ass and he didn't fix nothing. So we had like our hoods didn't work. And so the whole place, the, the, the kitchen especially obviously be filling up with smoke where, yeah. With that many patties. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. And especially like we get a bad batch from whoever at the time and they're really fatty and we're just smoking up the place. Fuck, man. We used to wear sunglasses and bandanas on the line. Like I'm not even joking. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, there was was, a time. He wouldn't fix anything because he just didn't want to he wouldn't want to spend the money. Oh my god. He didn't want to spend no money, yeah. And he was raking in the dough, so he just he wanted to see it keep rising. Um, there was, there was like, so in that area of Chicago, there was like underneath the, the asphalt, there was still like that brick under layer, like the, the, the streets used to be brick and they just put asphalt right on top of it in our kitchen, in our kitchen, like they, they put the building on top of the brick, but in our kitchen, there ended up being this huge divot, like just giant hole that, uh, stayed there. It was there when I started and stayed there for years. And so like in in this tiny little area, you'd have to take a step into this almost six inches deep, probably uh, a hole just, yeah. And then, and of course there's like oil, (laughs) there's fryers everywhere and hot shit. Every, like it's crazy. So many accidents. (laughs) Wait, how did, at that point, how do you, how do you get a health inspection? Like do they, do you just cover up the hole when the health inspector comes in or like, what? How? How does that? I don't understand I don't know how, how much are, I can divulge, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't have to. That's insane. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money going to the right hands uh, during <laughs> okay. that time. Yeah, and it's Chicago, yeah. so you know, like you know the history of how things work out there. I'm sure, and it's just that's insane. Throw a couple bucks to the fire guy, and he's like, "Yeah, all right, you can have 150 people in this room. No problem." <laughs> That's there could be smoke insane. filling up. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The customers don't care. They just want their food too. Uh, damn. That's insane. Do you know how that whole happened? Uh, no, I don't actually. I, I, I never asked. Um, they just, what they did. It's funny. They would just 
like pile up. They would get wet, wet cardboard from downstairs in the basement. Oh my God. Get wet cardboard and kind of fill the hole each day. And then the, the mole men or porters, whatever you want to call them, they would Uh come up and each night that would be part of their duties was to like get rid of this nasty grease filled, like paper mache thing that built (laughs) in this hole. Holy shit. Oh my God. That's crazy. I mean, I, I used to work on trailers and stuff. We do the same sort of thing, like lay down boxes and stuff and, and they'd be covered in grease and black, you know, ooze by the end of the night and stuff, but nothing, I don't think as bad as that's, that's pretty, that's pretty gnarly, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it was years. Yeah. It's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> what were you saying about the, I was saying the customers don't really, uh, they don't seem to care. Were you, you were saying something? Yeah. The customers really didn't care. Uh, it was part of the appeal. <laughs> It was crazy. Like yeah, right. I remember that at one point they had a list of rules and the rules were like, okay. it was so lame. It would be like no bitching oh, okay. and like for customers. don't ask for ranch. Oh yeah. Okay. And uh, part of the appeal was, yeah, that it was smoky. It was the, the waitresses and the bartenders who were only allowed to be women would <laughs> okay. be right. Ra- they would be rude to you and they loved it. They ate it up. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, people, people, people like that kind of thing. That story's great um, because I think anybody who's worked in kitchens and some capacity knows that like they always have shit that's wrong with them, and so you can recall instantly something that's happened to you in uh, in this sort of the same way. There's a lot of stuff that customers don't see, and uh, I don't want that clip to seem like calling out Kuma's Corner for their working conditions or anything like that. No, this is just the shit that cooks talk about. You know, when I'm talking to, to any any cook. Uh, and when you hear cooks talking, we're just telling interesting stories. Like it's just shit talking, and 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 it's it's not uh, trying to call out restaurants for their working conditions. No, it's just that's what this podcast is. We're just talking about the places we've worked and the people we've worked with. So there's no agenda. Uh, next up was um, man, probably was the biggest podcast of the year. Uh, that was with. Uh, Episode 14 with Slowburn, Tiff Ortiz, and Andy Dubrava, uh, who are out there, uh, as far as I see it, changing the game, man, changing the restaurant game. Uh, not only with uh, food waste, uh, building a zero-waste kitchen or restaurant, and um, and also changing what a restaurant can be, because it doesn't just have to be a location in one place, because uh, Slowburn's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than a restaurant. It's a lot more than two chefs. It's a lot more than cooks. It's a lot more than than just one thing. So I'm glad that this was the episode uh, had the highest listens and all that kind of stuff. So uh, for me, this was the year of of slow burn. Well, I'd I'd like to actually hear how you guys built up to this idea because I mean, if you Andy, if you started at Rustic eight years ago and then you were wolfing at the same time like how did that did you guys how did your journey through the restaurants kind of lead to you to this this very new restaurant restaurant style I guess yeah I mean Tiff has actually been doing this for longer than than we have been doing this together we kind of oh uh, really okay go ahead <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll take it away uh, so he <laughs> uprooted as our working title in 2017 yeah. um, when we first connected and we were okay. doing that farming tour across the country to settle on okay. that little farm in Malibu uh, indefinitely. And so Uprooted was just us putting together recipes um, on each farm that we stayed on. We cooked utilizing only the ingredients we had and we just kind of kept track of them. 
And the idea was to kind of combine all of these different recipes into something. TBD on that. But <laughs> um, yeah. eventually when we got back to California and it was the in-between time um, before Andy went back to Rustic, we were doing dinners out on the farm and we were cooking outdoors. I built an outdoor kitchen with the help of a carpenter and some manual labor from Andy. <laughs> and uh, we had like intimate anywhere from two to 20 people dinners out in the Meyer lemon orchard. Um, so oh, there was awesome. kind of always a connection to agriculture there because we were composting, we were planting seeds for ingredients that we planned to use, we were foraging for ingredients. We were cooking over fire for the most part over there too. So just very, very much at one with the property, I guess. And then Andy went back to Rustic and he took over as chef there, uh, took on a stronger role. And I started working more. I've opened a bunch of restaurants as a consultant chef. And then I've also been doing a lot of outdoor um, events and things like that. So mine is more, my style of cooking is more production geared and his style of cooking is very much like a la carte restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So slowly <laughs> as we started to, you know, kind of figure out what our sound was as a chef couple, as opposed to what our sound was separately as chefs working together, uh, Slowburn yeah. was born. We rebranded ourselves, yeah. I guess, eight <laughs> years later. Yeah. And we decided, like, you know, what if the larder was just what we based everything on? What if we started with the garbage instead of starting with the good stuff? And yeah. so yeah. it's just like cooking, cooking, <laughs> you know, cooking, utilizing the ingredients that are usually overlooked. And so we kind of plan these events close together so that the waste from one event can get fermented just in time to use for the next one. And so yeah. that's kind of like... Yeah. The beauty of this tour, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part yeah. about it is that we're traveling and we're never in the same place for very long. So fermenting in, you know, unpredictable the car, the car at points. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's not a stable environment, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Making, making miso and putting it in the U-Haul. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. It's we get pretty cool. Punk rock. Yeah, it's pretty punk rock. Yeah. Everybody thinks yeah, we have like a staff that works with us. We get people applying to work with us all the time. And I'm like, it's not what you think. It's very, very <laughs> much like a DIY, like punk rock. Like we smell terrible. We're shoved in the Subaru with two dogs. Like our larders yeah. in, you know, upcycled boxes in the back of like a rented U-Haul hitch that we strap to the back of the car. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it's a lot of like weird shady dealings with Airbnb hosts and things like that, <laughs> but it always seems to <laughs> work out. Weird. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty weird. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been cool. I mean, that's what it said. That's what it seemed like to me. Like when you guys announced your, your tour, your world, world tour, I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is like a band going yeah. on tour. It's like, yeah. we're going to go out and pack up a van and just fucking like that's, tear shit up. You know, yes. Yeah. Just, Figure it out, DIY style. Yeah. To, some old punk <laughs> shit. Yeah. Where we're at. Everybody <laughs> pile into the Subaru. It's time to make some snaps. <laughs> the last, I would say the last like four months, five months. Yeah. Shit. I know. Um, we yeah. work like really fucking hard for like 10 days from the moment we wake up till the moment we go to sleep. And then we're able to kind of decompress and take three weeks uh -huh. off that kind of thing yeah so it's been a very different 
lifestyle than working in a restaurant. Yeah. The same highs and lows that a touring band goes through, I'm sure. Yeah, right. You guys only get like your... And and being the tour manager at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of punk bands have done that. You guys are... uh, I like that uh, you're, you're bringing that to the food scene. What, what, what was the impetus for the idea? Do you guys, was it something that's slow or were you just like, you know what, let's just fucking do it up like a, like a, like a band. I mean, I mean, for a restaurant. slow burn. I mean, definitely didn't happen. Yeah. Um, no. Me, I like strongly believe that I don't want to seem all gloom and doom, but like the restaurant industry in its form now cannot exist much longer. I completely agree. Exactly the news, you know, climate change, whatever, like something needs to change. And yeah, we didn't want to take on any sort of investors and try to open this like state of the art, you know, zero waste brick and mortar restaurants. We were like, how can we do this with the money, the little money that we have saved up and do it the right way. And also like have fun and travel. I've never been, anywhere in my life i've always just worked so yeah we knew that this touring around is not going to be forever mm-hmm. so we we know that we're working towards something and going to all these different restaurants we're learning things that we like and we're learning things that we don't like and we literally just have a list going of like when that time comes and we're going to open something I've never had a clear picture of what that would be in my head until yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, that's we, we, especially Andy, after, you know, working in the food scene out here, we've been offered a lot of investorships and things like that. People yeah. who want to invest in whatever re- restaurant we would like to do, as long as it's in LA or as long as it's this or as long as it's, it's that. And by the end, it's just like your mission is so diluted that it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah, right. And there have been a lot of times where we've gotten really close to getting investors to open our own thing. And the second they hear, you know, people over profit or planet over profit and things like that, they, they think they say it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's impossible. You can't do this and be a business. And so, Slowburn was also born equal parts resentment. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I like that. That's very punk rock as well. Like, I fuck saying, you guys. Well, you know what? Yeah. Fuck you. We're going to make lots of money. Yeah. And we're going to spend it in the right places. And we're going to we're gonna do it with very little seed money. I mean, we started Slowburn with $2,000. That's and awesome. Yeah. We are a profitable business. We're able to pay ourselves. Our business has zero debt. And we're six months down the line. And you know, we're still looking good. We're still feeling confident about, you know, all of, all of our missions and we haven't really had to do much compromise and we still have eight months booked out ahead of us. So it's looking pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys are looking great. And then when they do want to invest in us, we can say, okay, we can do things our way because here's the (laughs) P&L from last year. And I can show you that we can be a profitable business without destroying (laughs) <laughs> you know, destroying yeah. the planet in the process. What an honor to be uh, their first podcast ever. Aside from that, a huge highlight of the year was meeting them and going to those dinners, being invited to the maiden kitchen to help them in whatever small way I could, and then getting to eat their food. And then that's that was oh, a great experience, a fun experience. Um, and then going with my friends to Emmer and Rye to see what they were doing there. 
really, really, really incredible highlight of a year. Yeah, I'll also say that Tiff and Andy also have a cookbook that just came out. I say cookbook, but in typical Tiff and Andy fashion, it's not just a cookbook. It's called Uprooted Volume 1. It's a, a cooking comic book series. Um, so yeah, they're always doing something different and unique. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And you can definitely check that out at uh, weareslowburn.com. I'm definitely going to buy one. Um, and then on top of that, they got some some stuff remaining from their larder up on their website. So if you're just interested in some vinegars or like some extracts, definitely check it out. Give them all the support they need, all the support they deserve. Uh, next up, episode 15 was Eric Anderson. Eric was somebody I that was recommended to me by Michael Swing from episode 13. They're, they were friends from back in Chicago. And Eric showed a totally different side of the hospitality industry I'd never really gotten that much into, which is the coffee scene. And so for me, the highlight of this was the coffee throwdown. I can't forget to tell you about this one other little thing. Just at the time, what else was going on in the coffee scene in Chicago that not a lot of people, I think, know about. Every month, they still do this to this day. Every month, there's a thing called a TNT, a Thursday night throwdown. Okay. And a Thursday night throwdown is every month a coffee shop in Chicago would host and you sign up and it's bracket style. So if you sign up, they put your name in a bracket and it's a latte art competition. And two people would go on a machine at a time, steam their milk. Someone's pulling the shots and each person would pour latte art at the same time, uh -huh. set them down. And then three randomly selected judges who were like industry guys would each choose one and then you proceed or you get knocked out. <laughs> So that's the throwdown. And now still happens. Still happens, dude. But now think about this though. You have standing room only. There's like four kegs, loud music blasting, and that's the throwdown. And it's like yeah. four hours long. Dude, it was just madness. Like crazy town. <laughs> and like you show up and it was like, damn, you could see how stressed these baristas. It was like party, like I've never experienced before, dude. Yeah. Like, did you do it? Did you actually run through the through the, the tournament? Lots. Oh yeah, dude. I eventually, <laughs> I was eventually traveling. I have two times competed in national latte art competitions. <laughs> did you Very ever win real. any? Where was what's your? I placed, what's your... I placed second, dude. I have horrible That's... nerves. It was so fucked. And if there's one thing you need, I can't imagine. Like <laughs> exactly, you, you must be shaking the whole fucking time. I was just going to say, if there's one thing you need when you're pouring a latte, it is like a steady hand. And if you have yeah. nerves, you're just literally like, I could do this alone, no problem, over and over and over again. <laughs> but a room full of people just like watching Staring what you're you? doing, dude. All coffee people too, who know what to Jesus. look for. Is there it's like an nightmare. audience or people just like sitting down, like cheering and stuff like that? Or what? Oh, yeah. I mean, it basically... If there's an audience, everyone's watching. And in fact, a lot of places, what they've started doing is they'll project... Like they'll have a GoPro on the pores and project it onto the screen behind so everyone can watch it. Dude, I'm not making this what? shit up. This is so come to Chicago and go to a throwdown. It's insane. <laughs> that must be crazy. To, okay. It, it is crazy. But I will, I'll be real. Like for as funny and weird as it sounds like, I met a lot of people through it. It was great yeah. for connecting with like people. For You could see kind of like what other coffee shops were doing and like kind of what their vibe was. Um, and it was just like a fun little event for I think people who are otherwise constantly waking up early and going to bed early because they were always, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. It was like, the, it felt like the time when these people can cut loose and be normal, like <laughs> yeah. night owls for once. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, man, it was a, it's a whole thing. Like I said, it still goes on. What but sort yeah, of yeah, art is it <laughs> all the standard art or do people like it super creative and like create weird symbols yeah. and stuff? Or is it, what is I mean, it? that's the beauty What's the of the criteria, I guess. Okay. So glad you asked. There is three criteria, generally speaking. So it's contrast, meaning like white design against brown, like latte okay. background. There's symmetry, yeah. how even your design is. And then there's uh-huh. like overall, like, does it fill the cup? Well, does it look nice? That sort of thing. Now that said, <laughs> that's why it was cool to do these things with different coffee shops. Cause like at Intelligentsia, it was always very regimented, streamlined. Like if someone was competing from there, they're going to pour like a really nice, full, symmetrical, like standard latte art. But yeah. then you get someone from some like little funky little coffee shop cafe down the street competing who would pour yeah. like a dragon or a swan, like breathing <laughs> fire and shit, dude. And then the yeah. judges are like, uh, shit. <laughs> like <laughs> one's obviously more creative, but like technically this one's better. So the one I always think about is I was at a latte or throwdown and it was a big crowd. And it was like one dude from this very like intelligentsia end of the coffee industry. And then mm-hmm. what I just said, sort of like more mom and push type situation. And they both put their drinks down and one was like a perfect little latte art design. And the other was like the most cohesive penis latte art I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire life, dude. Full on. Oh, who's like, that person? Balls That's and amazing. all, dude. It was That's nuts. Fucking hilarious. So, well, dude, they put them down and like the audience was like, <laughs> like everyone, it was like such a thing. And the, the, the lot, the dick latte art won. And it was a huge awesome. upset. Dude. Yeah, like good. everyone yeah. was like, no, like the, the intelligence was like, what the fuck? It was so movie, dude. like out of a movie, like it would make a perfect, like, yeah. um, anchor, or like not anchorman, but like a Will Ferrell style comedy, like dodgeball yeah. or some type of shit, but make it a yeah. lot of competition. Yeah. There's so yeah. much people who take this crazy. shit so seriously. Yeah. That's hilarious. Insano. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was like, that's, I, that's a taste of the coffee industry. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's the, that story's really funny. Uh, episode 16 really stands out as a highlight for me personally, because I tend to just browse on Instagram. You know, I'll just find people randomly and then I'll just message them. And you know, some people message back, some people don't. And, um, and I really like the people that I don't know anything about. I just, there's something about their profile or something where they work. And I think I saw a picture of, uh, of chef Christy Peters and she was working behind the line. I was like, oh, I'll just message her. She seems cool. She's chill. She's probably got some great stories, not knowing anything about what restaurants she's worked in or anything about her, literally nothing about her. And she was like, yeah, sounds fun. Let's, let's do it. For me, these are usually my favorite episodes when I get to talk to somebody who I know nothing about and I just get to hear the stories and learn more about them, especially when there's somebody like Chrissy Peters who has uh, incredible story and an incredible work ethic. And this clip just demonstrates that. So I moved back to Saskatoon with Kyle, my partner, and um, started looking for a location. And we found this like old a hundred year old building, but it was a Chinese restaurant that was like a staple in Saskatoon for 50 years. Everyone knows that it's called the golden dragon. It's like, but the building had been abandoned for seven years. Um, and it was okay. in a, an exact time capsule from like the 60s, 70s and 80s. That's cool. Yeah. And it was like many different rooms and it was like the decor was like very 60s, 70s, 80s, like golden crane wallpaper, like orange banquets, like the that's awesome lanterns. The, the lounge area was like, Pepto Bismol pink and red with like very uh, <laughs> yeah it looked like yeah Twin Peaks kind of shit like it was just like that's totally cool. insane 
And it looked yeah. like the cooks just like dropped everything and walked out. Like it looked like they got raided. <laughs> there was still like pans and stuff yeah. on the stove. The, the deep fryer was full of like a solidified like red jelly like oil that had solidified. It was like Holy fucked shit. up. Um, but yeah. it, was, it was a turnkey operation. It came with all the tables, chairs, um, tongs, bowls, pots, like whatever. It was super dirty, filthy. Yeah, I was gonna say how much how much work did you have to do to get that thing back up and running? We scrubbed for a month straight. Um, and, Jesus, all yeah, right. and it was just a turnkey operation. They made us pay like first and last month's rent, gave us the keys, and gave us everything in the building. It was like. The, that's insane it was a miracle yeah. like they should have sold us the business and then but they basically like rented us everything like as as it was okay but it was all like really cool old stuff like they don't make it like they used to like the mixing bowls were like heavy like thick <laughs> and, like the yeah, they had those heavy heavy bottoms right yeah, yeah. it was cool um so we did that did you did you keep it the de- the decor and absolutely it was yeah awesome. it, we just cleaned it up and uh let it shine let it shine and <laughs> yeah it was good and so that restaurant i was able to like acu- like accumulate all of the things i had learned at all the other restaurants so we were like vegetable forward we were doing whole animal butchery we did like our own charcuterie program we did a five course tasting menu with forged ingredients like foie we did um damn our own compost How- program we worked with a local farm how big was this restaurant? How many was, seats are we talking? Well, the building was as big as like an elementary school almost. It was crazy. Um, we started with Holy only shit. a few rooms open, but we eventually built a patio too. So it could be over a hundred seats at times. Wow. What but, made you guys decide that that big of a restaurant for your first go? We didn't want to. We were looking for something oh, just, tiny. Like yeah. we wanted something that just Kyle and I could run with like one server, um, but nothing was coming up and then when we, when we saw that, and cause there was this place in Vancouver called the narrows and it was like this narrow hallway where just like two people worked it. Um, and yeah. then when we got to, uh, see that place, we were like, this is the opposite of the narrows. This is like uh, the hollows. Like this is like a big hollow giant thing. Uh, so we ended yeah. up calling it the hollows. That's awesome. And then it got, uh, it was open and thriving, for yeah we had a horticulturist on staff that was growing all those seeds that i saved uh directly for the restaurant so we had uh Damn, veg- so you dove in yeah so we, we went had, from like, zero to a thousand yeah That's we did insane. i finally got to do the restaurant that i wanted to do i took i was like every restaurant that i've been at has done something really cool but not everyone's doing all of the cool stuff that i want to do all at once so yeah. I wanted to put all of that together and do everything the way I wanted to do it with like so much meaning behind it. I basically run it like a homestead, like a, like the apocalypse is coming type thing. It's <laughs> like curing, preserving, fermenting, like seed saving, like composting, gardening, like everything, like hunting. That's we incredible. All, yeah. We all have our hunting licenses and our gun licenses. We're all crazy out here. That's wild. The there's yeah, there's, there's a few restaurants that are doing that. I think like only like, there's only a few restaurants that have their own farmers and things like that who are like cultivating. That's, that's wild. That's amazing. Yeah. Like they're on payroll. It's, it's actually quite expensive, but it also isn't because the quality of product that you get is unparalleled. So yeah. And it's specific to you. It's not like it's, it's like you bought it from a purveyor or anything like that. Right. Yeah, totally. How many, how many people did you have on staff? Like imagine that was a huge staff. No, well, not at first. Like we had a lot of front of house near the end. Um, and then the kitchen was probably near the end, about five people. Um, but we could run the <laughs> line nice. with three. Wow. Yeah. 
The way that I set up the menu was really smart and we could run it with three people. It was good. What was what was mainly coming off of there? Was it mainly just um, meats and vegetables? Just keep it. Yeah, it was like uh, there was like a small section that had like small appetizers, and then like all of our in-house charcuterie. We had like a charcuterie board and a cheese board, and then we had like probably like five or six mains that were some vegetarian, some meat, with the whole like rotating whole animal cuts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then like I don't know four desserts and a huge cocktail list of all like all the odds and ends that we couldn't use in the kitchen. We turned into cocktail stuff. That's cool. Like there yeah. was a zero waste restaurant. Like there, we got our dumpster picked up once a month and it was like always empty. It just had like tin foils from like wine bottles and stuff in it. Cause we, I would keep everything. I was, it, the building was so big. I was able to be a huge hoarder. So like, Oh no. yeah. yeah so I had would, plenty of space. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like anything, awesome. Anything that comes into the restaurant, we've paid for, so nothing can leave because everything, anything that we're that's leaving is has possible value that we can still yeah. extract from it. So I wouldn't let anything go in the garbage without me like looking at it. We get like triple uses out of some stuff, and like that's awesome. Yeah, even like the Maker's Mark bottles with the red wax, I I would make them like scrape all the red wax off before we recycled the bottle because I'm like I'm gonna melt that down and do a project with that. Did you end up doing something with it? Yeah, we put little like wax seals on our menus and stuff, or like I'd seal. Oh, that's awesome! And, like we we tanned hides there. Like we get Icelandic sheep from a local farm, and then I'd get the hides and I'd like tan the hides and decorate the restaurant with that. We make Holy our own shit. Show. That's amazing. Yeah, like basically, this is the other thing: the whole animal butchery. Um, we did our own compost program. Then we would use the entire animal, but then the bones we would turn into stock. But then the, uh, the inedible fat we would have left over. So I would render the fat and make soap, make hand soap for the bathrooms out of it. Um, so That's we made amazing. our own soap in-house as well. Yeah. And then the bones, we would actually burn them because we didn't know how to get rid of them. We didn't want to throw them in the garbage. We wanted them to go back into the garden. So we would like burn them to ash and then and then use them as like no that's that's awesome probably yeah. super nutrient rich yeah stunk um, real bad stinky <laughs> lots of work uh, lots of work i was just gonna say how how was it running that restaurant because that sounds like an insane amount of work it was so much work um but it was work that i loved and i wanted to do so it, it had so much meaning and it was just so amazing and i was so young and so stupid that I like didn't realize that I was doing all this work. Um, I just thought I just thought I was living my dream, and I was. Yeah, that restaurant sounded sounded incredible. <laughs> it sounded like an insane amount of work. People in the restaurant industry are insane, and people that are drawn to this this industry they tend to be psychotic sponges. Like I know me personally, and a lot of people uh, in my friend circle are just we can't get enough of learning and expanding and trying to be creative. So, and this next clip with uh, Matthew Sartori from episode 17, I thought that, that Matthew's perspective on this was pretty spot on, which does in some way relate back to Leah's episode and her story at the beginning of this episode. Were you mainly in fine dining before you started teaching? Yeah, I put, yeah, definitely done more fine dining than not fine dining. I would go eat. I mean, if you look at my resume, it's kind of like fine dining for a bit and then do something casual because I'm obviously like, I just wanted to chill out for a bit. I've done everything from fine dining to cafes as well. I'm kind of the same way as you. Like I kind of balance creative projects and then I'll get kind of bored with that and then I'll go do something else and then try to challenge myself by, you know, working in 
a high-end restaurant and then I'll get tired of that and then I'll, you know, chill yeah. out for a bit. So yeah, I got sort of the same ebb and flow as you, you know? Yeah. I don't think there's uh, anything wrong with that. I think it's just like, no, not at all. To like stay engaged, you know? And like, if yeah. you can't engage somewhere, then it's like just find something else that's new and you can do it all over again, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I think is so great about this, this job is that you can, there's always something to learn. Always somebody to yeah. learn from. Um, yeah. The only thing that sucks is the pay, but right. there's so much to do about that. So, yeah, but I yeah. think like lots of fulfillment that we get from like, you know, it's, it's like training for a sport, you know, like you, if you put in the hours, then you get the results. So, like, for sure. If you yeah. Pay more, you think of it like that. You like, even when you're in a more, you do more hours, you're going to come out of it better, you know, I think. Oh, yeah. 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 That's really, that's a really good way to put it. Like, it is just training. You're essentially mm. training, yeah, and then it just comes yeah. out, yeah. And when I, I see it from like both angles, where it's, you obviously don't want to like overwork people and take advantage and stuff like that, but at the same time, people are like willing to do it as <laughs> well. We like things, and I wouldn't change I, it. I, I was too, yeah. But it is a shame that like I think for people that want to do it, they kind of can't and they get forced out of the door and things like that. And then if you <laughs> do allow it, then it's like you have this segregation of like people that don't want to do it and people that do want to do it. So it's just a bit of a messy situation and there's no real right way to tackle no. it. I think we just kind of have to cop it, you know, because you yeah. don't want to be a place that it, you can only hire. Like if it's fine dining, obviously you're going to expect everyone to be doing huge hours. So mm-hmm. you don't really want to be like an exclusive place that only certain people have that mentality that they want to go and work there. Yeah. There's always going to be people that want to, those crazy people who want to work the hours, they'll do it at any cost. They don't care, you know? And there's going to be well, like think, said, the people who don't. So personally, I couldn't do that anymore. Like, no, definitely I mean, I'm only in certain three now. And like, I can't imagine myself like doing that anymore. Like, I'm just, it's just too. Yeah. It's a young person's thing. I mean, now, yeah, yeah I, I can't do it anymore. I mean, it's, it's different. It's a different when you're younger. For sure. For sure. It's a shame. I had such good memories mm-hmm. of doing that. But um, sure. yeah, I think I just have to put it behind me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same here, man. They have some pretty good memories of being younger and just like trying to work for free anywhere uh, and having that mentality, like soaking up cookbooks. I was like reading cookbooks relentlessly. It's just a, I feel like a different person from that, from that, that kid who's just willing to abuse his, his body and in, in whatever way the, uh, the kitchen needed, you know, uh, I'm just not like that anymore. And I think the service industry is kind of changing a little bit. I don't know. I'm not a young anymore. I'm not a young buck. So I can't tell you that, that perspective. Yeah. One of the most surreal, uh, moments in my entire life happened this year. And that was getting to talk to Zamir Gota. I, if you don't know who that is, then you better educate yourself. As you know, I'm a huge Bourdain fan. I'm a, f- I know everything about the dude. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed to a weird degree. <laughs> And so I know the intricate relationship he had with uh, Zamir and a few other people who kind of revolved around the episodes that Bourdain was making. And Zamir was, you know, he was a close friend of Bourdain's. And uh, he was also, um, as Bourdain used to put it, his ex-KGB agent, <laughs> which I don't want to smash any any uh, any fantasies, but he definitely wasn't a KGB agent. Um, but... Uh, it was absolutely surreal growing up 
you know, like I said, being a young chef and, and even younger than that, just watching Bourdain and watching Zamir and then now getting to talk to Zamir, it was just fucking uh, so surreal. Uh, I, I can listen to that episode and I can just hear myself. I'm so excited. I'm like a little kid just like, do you remember that one time that um you did this one thing with Bourdain? And he's just so gracious and like just takes me in, you know, but he's got a magnetic personality. And so Zamir kind of takes you along, and and as he says, uh, he's on his peacemaking journey around the world, and uh, and uh, I hope he succeeds. I hope I get to have a shot with him one day, and uh, and if he's coming to your town, you better you better go to one of those peacemaking uh, shot taking events. There's so many highlights from this episode. I didn't know which one to pick, so here's one of them. Well, I gotta ask because I watched a bunch of the the episodes before uh we talked and uh you guys had this back and forth in the early episodes yeah. like did oh, that start yeah. with the massage or was that something that you guys just had naturally because it was the massage I, I know, actually then... it was a good reason like sort of uh what we call like tooth for thought like kind of thing yeah jokingly yeah. for yeah. the script yeah. tooth for that thank you uh yeah started with the massage which was absolutely unexpected scene that happened the very last day, because my local subfixers, as I call them in Uzbekistan, were pretty shy to show us kind of shabby, old-style hammam thing, kind of, and they were uncomfortable that the masseur would be not happy to be on camera. You know the word lubrication in the sense of uh, <laughs> <laughs> fixing yeah, yeah. terms, not not what yeah. they're thinking. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of tipped the guy before <laughs> we asked him to be on camera giving Tony oh, okay. a kind yeah. of massage. So he kind of overdid it. He thought that to impress me, the guy who tipped him twice than normal, yeah. he would do his best. And Tony, poor Tony, was definitely suffering a little bit of um, <laughs> sex harassment, kind of say. <laughs> yeah, he no, did not, not the, through it. You yeah. Know, yeah, not literally, but figuratively, definitely, because you yeah. wouldn't expect a man to be like moving him up and down, left and yeah. Right, you <laughs> thought it would be more like kind of skin massage, but that was more like physical thing, you know. Yeah, like chiropractor or something. Yeah, did you guys? But but then um, he he got you back. Uh, as yeah, with the, the walk thing sin. Yeah, with the walk yeah. thing sin, which was and actually then... my cultural shock. I never did it before, so it was very yeah. surprising as a gift for my upcoming birthday. You know. Yeah, I started but... to be more understanding of. You know, women, especially if they need to do some kind of, you know, very sensitive parts of, of the body before the uh, beach season starts. So my heart really belongs <laughs> to women who are much more, yeah. much more courageous and uh, yeah, sort of overcoming pain than a man like myself. You know? Yeah, that was amazing. And then you went to Transylvania. Did he seem oh, yeah. to oh, absolutely yeah. hate that? Was that just for camera, or did he really not no, enjoy that? Honestly, honestly, Halloween. that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was more of a my fault. But it happened okay. with the blessing of his company, zero point zero. So when I went yeah. alone on a scout trip, which is always the case, right? When I'm doing field production, right? Not only on camera, but uh, I'm normally on my own to go for a week to the country where we plan to go to choose okay. the right locations, to talk to the people. Not that we set up the dialogues, as you know, it's still unscripted, but you need to be aware that only within six full shoot days, you need to accomplish a lot. 
several cities, yeah, wow. you know, it's travel. So you need to have reliable people on the ground helping you to, to make it work. So, yeah. and uh, once, actually it was not just my initiative, 0.0 agreed that we should approach Romanian cultural board of, uh, board of travel and culture in uh, New York City, in, in the Romanian embassy. And they were so happy that, you know, Tony might visit them. They said, sure, let the mayor, you know, visit Romania and we'll assign a local fixer, so to say, right? To find, you know, and, and have a easier travel because I didn't speak Romanian. And that was probably a mistake, which we realized too late. So anyway, they wanted us to go mostly to the places where they thought it would be a better presentation of the country, right? Oh, okay. So like touristy kind of if you know, Yeah, so it, yeah. it was probably for the first time and for the last time. Meaning that normally I just find people and locations on my own for a recommendation, but since I've never been to Romania before, we decided it would be a much easier way to set things right with the transport, hotels, you know, et cetera, yeah. different culture. And so <laughs> we're on the top where we are on the top. And it was still okay until the very last day when the local security guy wouldn't allow us to do a stand-up in front of a Vlad Dracula monument in Bucharest Park, right? And there was some bullshit explanation why he wouldn't let us do it. I won't even recall. So the local subfixes from this Ministry of Culture allegedly sent, you know, email with a request and it was granted. But anyway, something didn't connect. And then Tony like really freaked out. And the whole the whole show became very negative. Yeah. Okay. Damn. So with local Chuika, if you remember that local moonshine. Oh, yeah. I had a yeah. terrible mistake, so I have to warn your younger audience. Never mix the booze with the painkillers. So in one of the scenes, if you remember, yeah, he, I had to... He gave you a painkiller, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I yeah. had to push his car, Dacia, the local car, which got stuck mm -hmm. in, in, in the mud of the you know roads and the mountains of Bukovina. And so mm -hmm. I really just pulled my muscles and uh, you know they gave me that painkiller, but the next sort of location was that, that dinner, the, the pit party. So I probably yeah. drank more than expected. And with painkillers connection, I kind of lost it. So Tony had to carry me to the van. So it wasn't planned, as you understand. Oh, it was man. pretty spontaneous. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> since that time, by the way, you need to be you know, aware that the Romanian government, who probably had no sense of humor, put both of us <laughs> on the blacklist. And they claimed in the oh, local really? newspapers, yeah, that wow. Zemir is a KJB colonel. I have no idea why they promoted me. <laughs> You know, I thought I would be like, uh, you know, yeah. private by that time and an alcoholic, which was disputable, <laughs> but since they saw me kind of losing it a little bit in the scenes. Yeah. Oh, wow. So anyway, never, never trust the local state uh, institutions because they really want you to see what they want you to see. In other words, that was kind of a mistake. But, you know, things happen. Did they want you to see the the hotel with the party and everything. not really they just wanted us to be yeah to be a little bit away from the real life right that whole okay. party of the you know local peasants they flashed out like how you know beautiful everything is like you know they kind of overdid it the young kid wearing that national kind of outfit oh, yeah. which yeah. he might never probably wear in his life but just Sort of to yeah, to send a message to foreigners, especially for the sake of the travelers, that we are mm -hmm. so you know good, we are so fancy, we are so clean and safe. 
in most cases that was the case, but not always. You know, so it, it, yeah. it, it became a little bit over polished from the sense of uh, you know content wise, which definitely pissed off you know not only Tony and myself, but it is what it is. It was like a little bit of a honey honey trap. Yeah, he seemed he seemed to, to very much hate when it, things were like staged uh-huh. and set up. The fish was always like a running yep. joke, but like the Halloween <laughs> the Halloween party where you guys had to dress up and like, yeah, he seemed to very <laughs> much despise that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that Halloween yeah. was something special. You're right. I think I got to Zamir in that one. I think uh, I'd asked him some questions that he hadn't really heard before. And uh, it was it was enjoyable experience. I only had forty five minutes with him, but maybe we can do a part two. I would love to actually like fly somewhere and meet him, and uh, do something in in person. That would be incredible. Maybe that's that's a goal for twenty twenty four. I said I wasn't going to make any goals. Let's let's make it happen though. <laughs> um, episode nineteen. That was with uh, Han Suk Cho. She's uh, also one of those people that. I just sort of happened upon and she has an, an amazing story, you know, and, and an amazing work ethic, man. People in this fucking industry, I'm, I'm just amazed by, uh, people in this industry and how they're, they go from one thing to the next. And like, we push ourselves so hard mentally and physically. And I'm glad that now there's some sort of perspective on it. Hansuk Cho has some, some insights, I chose this clip uh, with her because it just showcases how pushing herself and like going forward and she has a perspective about what she's doing and what she's done and where she needs to go next or would like to go next and how she wants to push herself. And um, man, yeah, people in this industry are, we're just crazy, man. We don't, we don't stop. We just don't know how to calm the fuck down, myself included. So listening to these people that I get to talk to, gives me some sense of perspective on myself i'm like i'm like you know what i'm, I'm actually doing all right <laughs> I'm, you know i can calm down and have a little perspective and realize i'm doing i'm doing all right i'm pushing myself uh i'm pushing myself enough let's let's relax okay providence was great working for a month but i knew there was like something more because Ooh. at some point i realized that la like the service step wise the front of the house Mm-hmm. So many people are, you know, actors, musicians, comedians. This oh, isn't what okay. they do for a living. Yeah. They're not like hospitality professionals. Yeah. And I wanted to experience people who are actually professionals who do this for a living yeah. full time. And this is all they think about. And yeah. LA didn't have that at some point, at that point. So I wanted to move to Bay Area where. Okay. The um, standard of service is higher. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you Where did you end up there? So after Providence, I started working at Single Thread Farms. Is Is yeah, that a restaurant is, or is that a Is that a Is that a farm? Yeah, it's a okay. It's a farm restaurant in Sonoma, Hillsburg. When I joined the team, they had opened for about a year just received their second star and they gave me a choice to work either back of the house star as a comi or front of the house mm-hmm. uh, not just being a captain yeah yeah it's a non-alcoholic beverage pairing curator okay yeah for like um yeah like non-alcoholic uh cocktails and stuff 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like it's like wine pairing, but non-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a huge thing nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, there was like four or five years ago. So that time nobody was doing that other than yeah, single for sure. at the time. And I was like, this is intriguing, and it's something very new, and I can incorporate my front of the house skill and bartending yeah. skill and cooking skill all at the same time. So I decided to take that job and was did that, that for was, was that new at that time? Like I I mean the actual program that they were was it starting when you got there or had they already had it in development for a while? They already had it in development and okay. the previous person had just left the position so the position was empty and mm-hmm. it was kind of like everybody trying to chip in the idea but nobody was really in charge. Okay. Okay. So I kind of like demanded that like I have all this experience. I think I can do it. And they, there was also like no like department head. It was just all me. So they wanted to have someone they can just like trust and go like no need to train. Is there actually a farm attached to the to the restaurant? So did you get to use a lot of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, farm. Yeah. they have the farm like... Um, a mile away from the restaurant. Oh, nice! That's really great. Sonoma is just such a great like farming area. Yeah. So I did use a lot about a lot of the produce from the farm. Like one year, they they planted way too many strawberries. Like way <laughs> <Okay>. too many. <laughs> Literally, like yeah. six hundred like lexan full of strawberries twice Ooh. every week. Hey, okay. Yeah, so yeah. I was using strawberries for a lot of drinks and make jams and send people home with it or <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also the Dang. restaurant had their own forager. So I would oh, that's go great. out. That's cool. Yeah, I'll go out with the forager and you know get all the organics in Sonoma and use that as the ingredients for the pairings mm-hmm. so yeah that was very that was a beautiful time how popular was that were people really invested in that when they came to dine or is it something that you kind of um uh maybe not forced on people but did you incorporate it into the tastings so that people kind of got used to it yeah it became quite popular because yeah. You know, Sonoma is wine country, but still there are people who come and decide not to drink or drink too much for wine tasting. And when they come to the restaurant, they decide Mm -hmm. to get non-alcoholic pairing. So at some point, like non-alcoholic pairing was selling just as well as wine pairings. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, especially in wine country. Mm -hmm. And it's such a new such a new thing that people are curious mm-hmm. about it because you yeah. know wine you can kind of get it anywhere but not like all the pairing they could only get it there listening to that episode back i kind of realized that she pushed herself so much that uh that she sort of got into a, a new realm of possibility i mean back back then like non-alcoholic beverage pairings 
didn't exist. And she pushed herself so much to get to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And, uh, that she got to an opportunity that, that like, as she said, people didn't really know what to do with, even at that restaurant, they were just like, people were sort of pitching in ideas. And then she's like, well, I, I got it. I can do it. Um, so I think it's a testament to, um, pushing yourself and keeping yourself moving. Yeah. Episode 20, we get to the, uh, barley swine series, man. I had a little mini series this, uh, year with, the barley swine people uh after i left the restaurant uh starting with the chef alexa mejia alexa's got a ton of great stories just hearing those stories and hearing her perspective on on restaurants was really really enlightening i never heard a chef of her caliber have this perspective that she had like i've always heard people go like i gotta work at the best restaurants so i gotta do this and like i have to work for thomas keller that kind of thing and uh she has a really really smart perspective, really, really, really great way of looking at things. Her stories enlighten the way that she works in the kitchen. And that's why I chose this clip. I remember I came in to work one day and it was the type of restaurant you put your chef coat on. You were working. You were at your station. Towels already folded, ready to go. I was working the dinner line. Michael Chiarello when I got there, if he was there, if I didn't greet him personally, he would come up to me and say, why are you ignoring me? Are you mad at me? What? Like flirty. Oh, shit. No. Why are you ignoring me? Are you mad at me? You don't want to say hi to your chef? Oh, God. And he would always weirded me out because his yeah. daughter actually went to culinary school with me. Oh, really? Yeah. She was the same age as me. Maybe she was a couple years younger. Oh, but that's weird. Um, I remember him saying that to me. I was like, oh, no, chef, I was really busy. I thought you were busy, too. I didn't want to interrupt your conversation. He's like, you're more important than whatever I was talking to you about. Yeah. He's That's creepy. That's creepy. Yeah. Especially if you think about it. Like, yeah. I'm your daughter's age. Yeah. I, one of my favorite things he probably said to me, I quoted to many a person, we had this hot app. It was arancinis with tomato yeah. sauce. Do a big spoon drag. Play the arancini. Maybe some mayonnaise. Squid ink mayonnaise. <laughs> and maybe grate some parm on top of it. So that was Very the Italian. extent yeah. of dishes that we were doing. So I remember my spoon for the tomato sauce hit the plate. And it made a ting yeah and then i did the drag and he was standing at the expo in front of me and he looks at me and he goes the next time i see you take my spoon and hit it to my plate that was glazed from the ashes of my wife's 50 year old zinfandel vines <laughs> what you might as well slap one of my kids in the fucking face. Jesus. Jesus. And I'm standing there with, like, frozen. Yeah. And I said, yes, chef. <laughs> That's all you could say. That's all you say is yes, chef. Yeah. It was That's well, so specific. And you remember every single word. Oh, yeah. That's that's wild. Well, I'm at this particular restaurant. It didn't matter who the chef was that was scolding me for something. You never were told that you couldn't do things by your peers because everyone was so scared of yeah. the chefs that all the peers just like 
let's say you were a new person, your peers, just the other line cooks, would just put their head down and like hope you didn't get them in trouble. So yeah, li- literally so, station yeah. partners Damn. would let you do something they knew you could get yelled at. <laughs> yeah. Like someone very easily could have told me, hey, chef has a weird thing about tapping spoons on the plate. Or uh-huh. or you never got told nicely. Like yeah. when someone starts working for a place, you're, from me as a chef now, your expectations of them shouldn't exceed what they've already proven to you. So if I hire someone I can't have an expectation for them that they haven't already shown I can't say okay roast this vegetable and expect that they're going to do it the way I want are they going to just throw a couple beets in the oven without salt or oil or foil or anything I can't expect that so the fact that I was constantly getting yelled at for things that people could have told me nicely really taught me how not to manage yeah yeah i think that's the only thing those those places are good for is showing you how not to treat other people it's a shame did that that didn't break you at all it was just for your ex- extra right you didn't end up yeah, taking the job so i ended up they talked me into starting early so i stodged about a month before i had to i was still in school and i stayed a month longer just Stockholm syndrome. I yeah. Say goodbye. Yeah. You should, um, you're... So I probably worked there under six months, but it the things they said to me wild. I so there's more than that. Oh, there's so much more. What? Jesus. There's so much more. I remember uh, we had like a side of French fries that we would do, and I really was taking into account everything that my peers have told me like oh more cheese less this or that i remember one of the chefs told me when you grate the parm on top it was a huge stack of french fries where i stacked french fries perfectly tall grating the parm in big long strokes so that the parm would like kind of catch the edges of the french fries uh-huh. and i remember one of the other chefs telling me michael loves it when it looks like Christmas tree with tinsel on it. <laughs> okay. That's so I, that's the visual yeah. you need to have. It's like French fries with this beautiful, like, seasonally looking parmesan. Uh-huh. And I slide into the pass. And he goes, have you been making them this big all night? And I looked at him and I said, oh, also, you said, I don't know, or didn't respond. Yeah, I yelled. No, would it, huh? You'd never yeah. say, I don't know. Yeah. Just as a preface, future stories here. Yeah. And I said, Chef, I'll make them smaller. He said, no, answer the question. Yeah. And I said, yes, Chef, I've been making them that size all night. Yeah. And then he said, do you have a calculator on you? And I said, my phone's in my knife roll, Chef. He said, go get your phone. I go this is grab the middle my of service. Yeah. Wow. And of course, he wants to do this in front of all of the chefs. So he like asks all the line cooks to come down the line. Uh huh. And everyone goes, "Yes, chef." And they go, "This is about ten percent too large." Ten percent. That's it. 
I thought I was going to get yelled at for like double the size. And then he made me calculate the math of exactly, sell exactly this many French fries every single day. How many days of the week? How many day, weeks in the month? How much percentage of gross is that lost? And he did the math. He was like, so you making them 10% too large is costing me five grand a year. Jeez. It was a very long, drawn-out thing. And Holy everyone shit. on the line, we're talking about like grown men who were working beside me, were staring at me, getting yelled at by this man. Oh, my God. I remember everybody thinking, hates you because you're, they think in they, their head, they're like, you're getting us in trouble. Jesus. You're getting us in trouble as well as yeah. I have 15 things on fire. Exactly. I was going to say he stopped the whole service for this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Often. Often. <laughs> As I said, I'm not trying to showcase like how shitty um, Michael Carmarelli or whatever his name is uh, was with that clip. I'm trying to showcase Alexa and how she took in that shitty experience and brought to a better perspective. And it's also a fucking crazy story. And it's horrible that people in the industry still have to deal with that type of shit. I hope they don't have to deal with it anymore. But, you know, who knows? I don't know what happens in, in these high-end you know michelin kitchens and shit yeah alexa has since left barley swine so i i wish her the best of luck she's gonna do incredible things wherever she ends up yeah she is definitely one of the people to watch in the next three to five years for sure 100 percent. yeah keep an eye out um next up was uh chef kevin uh from barley swine he's still he's still rocking over there at barley swine still cranking it out me and him sat on this porch that I'm sitting on right now in the dead of fucking summer. We both like are sweating through our our clothes and we sat here for three and a half hours, I think. We sat here for the length of a Martin Scorsese movie and he just talked, man. And he's got so many great stories. It ended up being a two-parter. I didn't want to cut much because I figured like it was all really entertaining. I mean, he can speak for hours, you know, and, and, and he's very easy to listen to. And so it was really hard to choose any clip from this episode. You can listen to all of it and it's all really good. But one story that stuck out to me and really showcased Kevin's spirit and his sort of attitude and his sense of humor is the Hollandaise story. Crazy okay. British guy, Julian Darwin. Okay. That's a great uh, name. He, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about respect. I learned a lot about why you say yes, chef. I learned a lot about why you do things the way that you do them for whoever you're doing them for. Uh-huh. Because uh, there's a funny story about that. Okay. And so every week, the curriculum was based off of the luncheon that we were doing out in the... The dining room of that it was thing? Dining room, sure. <laughs> um, it was like a, a meeting center, basically. And so in order to learn everything, you had to like do the recipe that you were in charge of, uh-huh. but then also like know what the other two, three people in your group were doing. Okay. Because that's all that was happening was I'm making the sauce, you're making the mashed potatoes, Charlie over here is cooking the chicken, and you had to coordinate. Kind they've of thing. got that's the what whatever. Mean. And that's yeah. all you're going to learn that week. So then back to the story of with with Chef Julian and learning why you do things the way that you you do things. The line cooks at work had taught me how to make hollandaise, 
without using a double boiler. Uh Uh-huh. And how was that? Just in a pot on the stove, but you just have a low pot, low uh-huh. flame, and you just bring it back and forth, kind of controlling the heat that you want to yeah. while you're whipping the eggs and cooking the eggs. Okay. And so, lo and behold, we have some Bernays sauce for the steak for, for luncheon this week. Yeah. And I'm the guy making it, and I'm cooking my eggs. I believe I might have been doing it in a bowl over the stove because they taught me <laughs> that way too. Um, Wait, just straight up like metal bowl. Metal bowl over the stove, just bringing it back. Yeah, just whipping up the eggs, right? And he must not like that. So he was watching me, like like the chef should. Yeah. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And I start to add the butter. And let's begin about halfway in with the butter. Okay. And he walks by and he sticks a spoon in and he tastes it and he goes, Your eggs are not cooked. Start over. Use a double boiler this time. And I was like, oh, shit. I was so fucking fluffed up and mad because I was like, you don't know. Nah, nah. So did you keep going? No, nah, I, I had to <laughs> throw it I said, yes, chef. Started over. Did it the right way. Uh-huh. The full story of that is for my black box final, which is uh-huh. chopped. Wait, um, that's what up. they do is you're like your final? That was they my final. Give you a, they pretty, give you a box cool. and I... Cook them a three-course meal with the ingredients that were in there. Is anything weird, like candy or something? Uh, it was no. It was definitely like they wanted you to show what you've learned oh, in the okay. school. So, yeah. uh, my nemesis was yeast, so I got yeast. This was like, a, I think it was like a three-hour cook because you had to do everything from scratch. Oh shit! Yeah. Um, you had to open the box, figure out what you were going to do, and then cook an entree or a, an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. Damn. So I had to. It was early in the morning. I got ham, and so I was like, well, what else do you put with ham other than eggs? How do you Mm. show technique? Eggs, Benedict. I don't know how to make English muffins because I suck at bread and that wasn't going to happen, but I know I can make biscuits. So I made biscuits, butchered in air quotes, the ham, Uh which is a chunk of ham, (laughs) showed my meat butchery skills, poached an egg, and then I made a hollandaise. Uh Uh-huh. How do you think I made that hollandaise? Did you do it in the double boiler? Oh, no. <laughs> I was doing it right over that flame. Were you doing that just to like sort of like poke oh, a yeah. bit? <laughs> and chef walks through the kitchen. Oh, shit. Eyes me the whole time. And here is my little 20-year-old ass shit-eating grin on my face, whisking my eggs away. <laughs> and the best part is he's not actually grading the finals. Uh-huh. I'm making two dishes for the other two chefs. Uh-huh. So they have no idea what's going on in the kitchen. Yeah. They're just grading the final product. Yeah. And he is looking at me, but he can't tell me what to do because it's me it's showing what test. I've yeah. learned from my test. And oh, that's, that's great. Ooh, baby. You're telling me that you give two chefs at 10 o'clock in the morning a biscuit with ham, a poached egg, and a hollandaise on it? Yeah. Clean plates. <laughs> Clean plates. Yeah, that was it from episode uh, 21. There's two parts. So that's from the first part. Listen to both. He's got some great stories in there. Next up was Mark Bewley. Underground. Famous chef from Austin, Texas. He's not from Austin, Texas. He's from the Midwest. And uh, he was the most requested guest. And um, shout out Andre Molina for making the connection happen. 
and also shout out Mark Bewley for you know being so down for it, man. Uh, Mark is a very quiet person. He keeps to himself. He does his work. He you know makes an impact on his community. He's not a loud guy. He's not on Instagram. He's he just makes impact with the the cooks and chefs that he works with, and that's how he became so well known. He's a he's a local legend uh, in, in these in these parts, and especially for me because uh, as I say in the episode, he's also a two parter. Uh, but as I say in his episode, he was a guy that I saw first time I went to Barley Swan. I was like, holy shit. How can you move that fast? And how can you move that fast with such accuracy and precision? And seriously, one of the nicest people I've ever met. It was also hard to find a a clip for him. But listening back to that episode, I thought that this clip really worked because it showed, again, his perspective, his mindset. And I think it's it also showcases what he's showing to young chefs, which I think is very valuable, which is looking at your education and the way that you take in information about cooking and thinking about it the same way that you think about the tools that you work with and the fancy apron that you wear. We were getting like a lot of world-class chefs opening up places in Minneapolis. And um, I was just like kind of blown away by the fact that like the food was just as good at these Minneapolis restaurants as it was at these like super high name New York chefs or international chefs. Um, and I was like, I want to do food as good as the best place in this city. Like, what do I have to do? And then that's when CIA's ACE program was like, maybe I should go there. Is that the best place? Yeah. Um, so I applied to that program. I got it. I ended up getting in. So did you find I think that from a networking perspective you... and from a proximity to New York City, it was definitely okay. um, worthwhile. And in terms of price? Well, how, I think was like the... the price thing, I don't know. It's sort of like as cooks, we'll spend $500 on a chef's knife knowing that it's like, is it the best one? <laughs> That's true, yeah. If it's not the best one, I don't want it. I want yeah. the best one. Is, is that $600? Yeah. Sure, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll find For an sure. extra $100 to get the $600 knife. Yeah. I kind of yeah. tried to have that approach when I when it came time to like pick a school. I'm like, well, I'm not gonna go unless I can get in one that yeah. I feel like is yeah for the sure the best chance of uh, yeah, sort of pole vaulting my career forward. Mm-hmm. And CIA that's, definitely that's, is that the was one my thinking at the time. For so that, like yeah. that's why I went for it. Um, yeah, and I was like, if the mm-hmm. if I have CIA on my resume after this like all of the books, all of the cookbooks that I have in my dorm room, like open. I can go work at those yeah. restaurants. Uh, I was so excited. Oh, for sure. That. Yeah. I'm like, I could go work for Charlie Trotter. You know, yeah. that was like a, a dream, you know, yeah. <laughs> or I could, you know, I could go yeah. work at, I could grab the Relais Chateau guidebook and just thumb through it and pick one and go. Um, yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, school, school went really well. I staged a ton. I'd go down to New, yeah, I'd go down to New York city, New York? like most weekends or yeah. I'd go to Terrytown and stash at Stone Barns. I stashed at Stone Barns probably 10 times. Um, and then wow. Danielle, I stashed there quite a bit too. I thought about, I thought wow. about working at Danielle. Like? Um, work, the, my stash at Danielle was interesting because I stashed, I want to say it was like every weekend for like five or six weeks. I'd go down there and stash. And I had a friend from undergrad who worked in the front of the house. And so I was able to stay with her. And then... Um, 
I got done doing all of my stages and it got time to sit down with, uh, was it Jean-Francois Bruel? I can't remember the, I think he was the CDC at the time, but I sat down with him to talk about a job and I'm like a little confused when he's talking to me about my resume. I'm like, oh, this is weird. And then like he, his attention gets diverted and I look across the table and he doesn't even have my resume in front of him. He's got somebody else's resume. <laughs> And so I like essentially was like, I'll think you, thank yeah. you very much, chef. I'll, I'll like get back to you. I, I have some other stages and I had been staging at, uh, at Aquavit at the time yeah. too. And at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. So I'm like, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time at Stone Barns. I'm really just trying to pick a place that I'm going to spend a lot wow. of time at, you know, a number of years when I'm done. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of there, I was like, the guy, the guy didn't even know my name and I'd work for free for five weeks. Uh, I'm not going to work here. <laughs> like, in Dynex, that's, that's which amazing. is you know the yeah. the ownership group of all the Danielle restaurants, they like someone uh-huh. someone from HR called me and was like asking me about the opportunity if I was going to take it, and I was like, um, I want to be totally frank with you, like Chef interviewed yeah. me and was making notes on a resume that wasn't mine, like I had no idea who I was, and I just got done working for free for like a while. That's hilarious. <clears throat> wow. There must have been a huge number it was of bananas. people in that kitchen, right? All, like half of them just yeah. Or in the, in, even when you'd stage, you'd be like, "Okay, go stand yeah. over there, watch, don't touch anything." Yeah, a lot of that. Really? So you just spend a lot of your shift? Yeah, just and it was like kind of such watching. a competitive kitchen. It'd be like, wow. uh, "Slice these two onions," and then you slice them. You know, you make five slices, and then you show them, and it'd be like uh-huh. thinner, and it'd be like thinner than the blade of your knife, and you're like, "Okay." They're just messing oh, like, with is, you. Yeah, like, they're just messing game? with you. Okay, um, yeah. And part of that, yeah. I was like, I like, I could, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I could deal with this if I had to, if I felt like the opportunity was good enough. But yeah, having yeah. gone through the hotel and restaurant management school, I was like, was so interested in building like a really strong team and um, and mm-hmm. being in an environment where like cooks were getting a lot out of each other. Um, and I, you know, yeah. Michael Ruhlman at the time was like writing all of these books on like the, the sort of underbelly yeah. of the chef's world or for like the professional angle. And there was an, there were enough mm-hmm. like glimmers of hope, even, even in the one that he'd written about going to being a student at the CIA. I was like, Oh, there are like nurturing yeah. and good and, um, growth oriented chefs there. Uh, and I'm like, and those chefs yeah. also exist out in the real world too. So I was like, maybe I'll find one of them. Mm-hmm. So I was like, exactly. I don't know if I yeah. want to work in New York yeah. after like being at all these, staging at all these spots and being like, maybe it's the place, maybe yeah. it's the East coast intensity. And maybe it's like, maybe my like Midwestern farm yeah. boy sort of, uh, upbringing is, is just <laughs> too misaligned. Um, so I started, you know, yeah. kind of looking more broadly and, um, I don't want to work in New York. I'm like, what's the, re- what's the restaurant I work at? I want to work at more than any in the world. Uh, and at the time there was uh, a restaurant called Cyrus in Sonoma, California. It was a two Michelin star restaurant. It was like just okay. when Michelin, Michelin was starting to come to uh, the States and was in the Bay area. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to work there. Um, Cause I was like, ah, French laundry has got like, What's the, what's the place adjacent to the French laundry? The food is like, you know what, arguably just as good. But it, it's not like in yeah. the bullseye of the media and it's not in the bullseye out of every cook coming out of every culinary school and every dreamer 
like I will work at the French Laundry and I'll write yeah. a book about my time there. I was like, I want to cook food <laughs> yeah. like that, but yeah. I, but I want yeah. to work somewhere where I could actually like rub elbows with the chef. Yeah, I really admire uh, Mark's mindset and perspective and his the way that he looked at the restaurant world. Man, that dude worked at top tier restaurants, and uh, I wish I had that sort of mentorship when I was younger. That's why I picked that clip because I hope that young people listen to Mark's episode and really have that perspective. Like you don't need to work at Thomas Keller's place. You don't need to idolize Thomas Keller. Like working in a place that has the same quality of food and has a chef that really cares about the cooks and has a um, great ethos and perspective about the food that they're putting out is way more important than just getting to a top tier kitchen where, you know, you're working with Michelin star chefs. You're going to, you're going to go so much further and you're going to, you're going to progress even, even more than those people who are just standing in the corner of Thomas Keller's kitchen. Yeah. If you're ever in town, definitely go check out sour duck. That is where uh, Mark is at now. And uh, definitely check out barley swine. Uh, next up, uh, it was uh, Mira, uh, Mira Colefield, who is a uh, comedian and um, performer in uh, in New York right now, and uh, she also works as a server. And I met Mira through uh, my best friend Keaton Smith, who is a uh, filmmaker. And he does a docu-series called uh, 16 Rachels, which is on No Budge right now. No Budge is like a, it's a website that, that showcases filmmakers who are making films on literally no budget. Highly recommend that series, but uh, she's going to be in series two. And she works in New York as a server. And, uh, and Keaton thought she would have some great stories for me. And sure enough, she did. Uh, just like Huey in one of my earlier episodes, she doesn't want to do this for a living. You know, she wants to, she wants to be a comedian. She wants to be a performer. She wants to be an actress. So like, this is not something she gives a shit about. So I love hearing that other perspective. You know, she's trying to get the fuck out of here. So hearing her stories comes from a totally different perspective than somebody like Mark of all the stories that she told, there can only be one in the year end recap. Yeah, man, I feel like, um, the the difference between what men experience in the food service industry and women experience is so far removed like yeah i can't even i can't even explain oh i've it. had so it's, many like crazy shit that's said to me. and i always laugh which maybe isn't good because <laughs> i'm like being it's never been super scary like where i'm like i'm scared for my well-being it's always been like or like the way they do it is just so like random and weird. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like I had this guy that it was at the Osvaldi factory. He's with his family. He's like old. And I get older men like always because they don't give a shit. And they're like back in my day. Like they're, I'm like, you get a pass because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this feminism shit is new to you. Like whatever. Like, okay yeah. but i had this like older guy he's like drawing and he's with his wife and then like four adult oh, no. children and their spouses okay. there's this huge like tabletop okay. of like adult people at a table yeah 
and he's like drawing and I'm kind of like whatever and he's like ask me what my name is and whenever they ask you what your name is you're like oh, God, we're about yeah. to be friends like this is going to be a whole you're you want to this is dinner and a show for you like I'm like we're yeah. chatting yeah um and so we get to like the salads this is early in you get a salad an entree and dessert like there are many courses many opportunities for me to come like i have to come to this table and we're like yeah. at like salads and he like hands me this piece of paper upside down on the table and he's like i drew this for nope. you and oh, i was God. like yeah and i saw it was upside down Don't. and i was like i'm not opening this in front of him like i was like this is gonna be scary <laughs> oh god and i like walk away and i open it and like it's a drawing of me holding to from behind okay all right and like he like detailed my like butt crack like he, it looks like i'm wearing no pants <laughs> because he like drew an ass crack like a full Jesus. ass crack like he drew my butt like it's like he started oh. with the butt that was his muse and then he kind of like drew everything <laughs> else filled it <laughs> yeah it was crazy i've like i don't know Jesus. like i ha i can like i just like found it and posted it on my instagram because I, I was like everyone needs to see this i don't know if you can like i'll like pull it up i don't know I if people can like see this or if it'll... Wait, you have to move it back a little bit? Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, he really did start with the butt. It's oh my crazy. God. This is like... That is nuts. Wait, did you... You have it? You kept it? Or did you just take a picture? No, then... I kept it. And then I took a picture. It's somewhere in my rooms. And I thought I lost it, too. I was so devastated. And then I found it recently. And I was like, yes! Because <laughs> it's crazy. And like... I was younger though at the time. So, and that was like my first like uh, harassment on the job. So it kind of like freaked me out. Like I was like, I don't like yeah, this. Now I'm yeah. like, you bitches are funny. Like you're acting crazy. But <laughs> um, wait, how did, how did his family not see him drawing this? And then what happened after that? I'm like, I'm assuming it was like one of those things where they're like, that's him doing his thing over there. Like he, they can't stop oh. him. Like this is, I'm sure this has been going on for decades, <laughs> but, oh or he did hide it. I don't know. Yeah. But then yeah. he like, I took the picture and I was like, I don't want to like serve this table anymore. But then I was like, whatever. I was like, at least I'll get a good tip. Like, hi. Did you go? Or was it he wasn't the one tip? paying? I got like, yeah. normal oh, okay. a tip. I was like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was his tip to me. <laughs> Yeah, that was the tip, yeah. But um, I came back after and he was like, did you like my drawing? I was like, it was so cool. Like, wow, so detailed. Like, thanks, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember I was like showing my coworkers and I was like, guys, this guy just like drew this of me. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. kind of not like, okay. I didn't think it was funny. Like at the time, like. But then uh -huh. once I like left the shift, I was like, this is hilarious. But in the moment, yeah. I was kind of like, I'm scared. Yeah. And What's the, this like, guy going to do? Yeah. Yeah. The like 16 year old busser was like, hey, if you're not going to keep the picture, like, can I? No. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? And he was oh, like, God, not joking. Dude. He was serious. Yeah, I was like, you people are sick. <laughs> oh, I was like, God. what is happening? <laughs> Yeah, it really sucks that she has to deal with that kind of shit. But I'm sure that any female working in any front of house position or back of house, of course, but um, in any front of house position has to deal with that shit every single day, multiple times a day. So 
it's nothing new. Sadly, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon, but at least she has a perspective about it that makes it sort of lighter on her, on her psyche, you know? Uh, yeah, it sucks that people have to deal with that shit. If you are interested in seeing that photo, you should go to, um, Mira's, uh, Instagram. Her name's Mira Caulfield, M-E-R-A-C-A-U-L-F-I-E-L-D. And uh, yeah, I think she has that picture up there somewhere. It's so fucking funny, man. The, the idea that that guy was drawing that in front of his family is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to believe. But the picture's there. You can see it. Oh, man. Last episode of the year, aside from this one, was um, an episode I did with Sham Mazumder from Ego Death. Also, one of those guys I just saw is, uh, I saw his, and I was like, who the fuck is this, dude? A metal-ass pop-up? Hell yeah, dude. Uh, so, yeah, I turned into a, I turned into a bro when I see that kind of shit. No. <laughs> so, I uh, contacted him, and he was like, yeah, sure, whatever, dude, let's do it. And again, just like Chrissy Peters, I had no idea about his experience or any of his stories. I had never met him before, which sat down and talked for an hour, and it was great. The work ethic of people who are drawn to this industry is always surprising to me. This was the clip that sort of showcased uh, who Sham is and, and sort of his mindset as well. Well, I mean, the big thing was like, I, like during grad school, I feel like I spent half my time just cooking. So I was like, okay, you maybe this at, is at home. You mean? Yeah. At home. Like, you know, oh, okay. on like dinner parties and stuff like that. I was like, Oh, you know, maybe this is a sign That's that's a pretty big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And oh, wait, uh, what was that? What was that server job? The server job, it was like in like a little like French restaurant in Boston. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a great place. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, but I feel like my real intention was like to try to get into the kitchen, but there was no opening. So I was like, all right, whatever, I'll work as a oh, server okay. and like hang it until something opens up yeah yeah what was that that's a crazy way to get into the, <laughs> the kitchen yeah okay. i mean I like you know when you have no kitchen experience like you end up <laughs> doing like, crazy shit so for sure yeah yeah but i feel like cooks are like so protective of like like anybody coming back there especially front of house front oh of house. yeah I mean, this place was, like, a little more, like, civilized. Like, it was definitely (laughs) a little more of, like, a whole house mentality. Oh, that's cool. Like, I think, like, the sous chef started off as, like, front of house and, like... Oh, okay. So, he he understands. So, there was a lot of, like... And it was, like, a no-tipping place. So, like, Uh, it was was a kumbaya scenario over there. (laughs) A little more progressive. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) What was the the clientele like in, in Boston? Was it... Was it uh, um, stuff, it was interesting. It was a lot of like awesome. locals, I think. Like it was, uh, it was definitely like a neighborhood spot. Oh, um, man. like big brunch scenario there. Ooh. Yeah, which you know, yeah. I mean, don't want to say too much about brunch, but what do you mean? Like, like you can uh, talk brunch all you want. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I hated working that shift, Br- like working. Yeah, sucks. it's terrible. Uh, but I mean, fortunately, the clientele is like pretty good. It was a lot of families, so mm. it was a lot of like parents who were like, "This is my two hours I get to go 
Oh, at house. brunch? Yeah. And they get, yeah, yeah, yeah they get a little. Oh, you know what? Like, can't say no to that. Ain't nothing wrong. Yeah. Did you, did you enjoy it or were you trying to get out as soon as possible? Um, I was definitely trying to clock out as soon as possible. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, it's like, it was, it was like good coworkers and stuff, but uh-huh. I think I was like, I'm not sure this is like, really for me <laughs> yeah did you manage to get into the kitchen there or did you uh no so i so there i was there for like maybe four or five months and then i ended up moving to new york with the intention of like all right i'm gonna you know do the thing working kitchens in new york and then covid happens oh no way okay yeah so i moved like to new york literally the first week of march 2020 jesus and all right okay i was like all right i'm here <laughs> a week later whole city shuts down <laughs> i'm like Fuck. wait so did you go wait wait did you did you have any kitchen experience before you moved to new york to, no. to do that no what yeah that's insanity yeah insanity. i mean whatever <laughs> it is what it is everybody talks about like new york is like uh yeah, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? But you want like to that. start. No. <laughs> All right. But I guess, you know, maybe for me, I lucked out, you know, shortage of workers. But oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I, so, yeah. That was a crazy time. That was very weird. Wait. Bad timing on my part. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, no, nobody really knew, but. Uh, <laughs> So, so what did you do? Because I don't think restaurants fully open back up until I want to say like I don't remember it's a blur, but like at least like three to six months after. So what did you what did you do? How did you get in there? Yeah, so I was like, I mean, fortunately, I like came there with like an oh, office okay. job with kind of the intention of like I see. quitting okay. very quickly. <laughs> um, and then yeah, so I just stuck it out with that. It was okay. like a nine to fiver, a computer job working at home yeah. all day, which sucked. But it was a uh-huh. job, so I, I stuck with it. And then once things like started opening back up a little bit, I want to say this is like summer of twenty twenty one. Wait, so you stayed at that job for, for two years then? Waiting for everything to open back up? Damn. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then summer of 2021, when like places were like actually uh-huh. like hiring again, I started off as a dishwasher in this like little, it's like, like a pop-up restaurant kitchen in the basement of like a okay. food hall. Um, it was a real depressing vibe, That's but nice. I was like, all right, this is the only job I can get. I'll start as a dishwasher here. God damn, dude. Yeah. All right. I could not even imagine at the beginning of my career going from having zero experience in kitchens to going to New York to try and work in kitchens. I don't know, man. That's a bold move, man. Show some guts and I like it. Uh, I was, I was thinking about that recently because I just got back from Japan and uh, I visited the first restaurant that I ever worked in. And if you want to hear about that experience, it's on the Patreon. 
patreon.com slash peon magazine if you want to hear all those experiences and about my trip through asia which is why i haven't been podcasting for a while i've just been working on that on top of you know living a life but if you want to hear about that uh that full story it's on there um i was thinking about sham's story because doing that podcast talking about the first restaurant i ever worked in which was a restaurant in japan and and i was recounting the story realizing like oh what a fucking gutsy move i didn't have any kitchen experience all i'd done was watch cooking shows my entire uh childhood my dad never let me in the kitchen um because he's a cook you know and and there's only room for one cook in the kitchen and so with zero experience i was just like oh i want to work on a kitchen in japan and i was like what a fucking ballsy move it reminded me of of sean's story what a way to end the uh the year Thank you for listening to this whole thing. If you got through it, I really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, listening to any of these podcasts. Thank you for your support. Thank you to all these people who came on and took a chance on a weirdo who wanted to hear about their life and uh, just took a, a stranger's DM and was like, yeah, I'll tell you my story. Fuck it. On a podcast, dude. I, I, I love that this is the new the new era we're living in. People are so much more open. It's great. Um Hopefully I'll be back soon with um, with a whole new suite of episodes, a whole new year of episodes. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this, this recap, I, I'm not trying to make any bold claims. You know, I'm going to keep those to myself so I don't break any promises. Thank you for any support that you've given, uh, any sort of uh, shares, likes, all that kind of stuff. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll be back in the new year with some new shit. Thank you. Have a great New Year's Day and uh, happy 2024.